Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. That's all right. Everything, okay. They walk through on dry ground, and, uh, and they're saved. And they're saved. And we see this miraculous moment as they stood on the other side of the sea. Right? So before, if you remember, they were, they were on the other side. They were being pressed against. We had the army of Egypt sort of barreling down on them. And then you had this impassable expanse of the Red Sea. They were still, in, they were still slaves, essentially. And their pursuers were coming after them. They had no way forward. And God made a way where there was no way forward. And they walked through on dry ground. And the minute they stepped foot on the other side of the Red Sea, they were saved. God saved them and then vanquished and destroyed the enemies of the people of God. Uh, it was this amazing moment. The, the moment that they stepped down, they were saved. Church, this is how the Bible describes even our salvation. How we enter into salvation. There was a moment in our life that through Jesus, God brought you by his power, by his might, through his grace from death to life, right? There was a moment. Now, the circumstances behind that moment were long, right, when you're talking about salvation, but when you were saved, that's why we have these, a lot of times in the church we have these questions. When, like, when were you saved? That's kind of the old school one that no one really says anymore. Now it's like, when did you become a believer? When did you become a Christian? We're, we're asking to, to understand and have someone describe when was that moment that God and his power saved you? And we're able to articulate that, many of us, that there was a moment uh, that he saved us. And when we're talking about that moment, when we're describing that moment, what we're really talking about is an aspect of our salvation that the Bible calls justification. Justification. So when we're talking about justification, we're talking about that moment that when we were a slave to sin, there was no way forward, we have no way out, God made a way and dramatically rescued us from certain sin and death, right? There was a moment that you heard the good news of the gospel. God gave you ears to hear and a heart to comprehend, and he saved you. When did that happen for you? And so when we talk about salvation like that, we're talking about justification. God, in an instant, applying the work of the cross on your life to justify you, to save you from sin and certain death, just like he did to the Israelites long ago when he parted the Red Sea, when there was no way forward, and their feet stepped on dry ground on the other side of that Red Sea. He's justified you. He, he, he said, you're no longer a slave to sin and death, but you're now alive to God through Christ. That's our story as well. So whenever that happened to you is when you can say you were saved or you became a believer or you became a Christian. And it's beautiful to talk about that. It's wonderful. But let me ask you a question as we're getting ready to look at Exodus 16. How is your life since God saved you? What does your life look like since God saved you? I mean, you're saved, right? 
Your sins are dealt with. You're justified. The the power of sin no longer has dominion over you. He's freed you. He's rescued you. He's liberated you. You're free from sin. So now life is awesome. It's easy. There's no trouble. It's roses. You skip everywhere. You hum. You're always singing a song. And you're just sort of, uh, you always have a lollipop and a rose with you. And everything's just wonderful, right? Is that your story? No, but wait. But God saved us, right? Why do we still struggle? Why do we still trip? Why do we still stumble? Why do we still fall? Why do we still have these things that, uh, that trap us? If God has justified you and you're freed from the slavery of sin, why do I keep sinning? Have you ever asked that question? One person. Okay, good. So just, just for you and I right here, this sermon. So here's the question. If I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? If I know God saved me, why do I keep stumbling back into unbelief as if I'm still under the penalty of this slavery? And today we're going to look at that question. Why do I keep falling back into maybe these same old patterns? The patterns like I struggled with even before I was a, was a Christian. And that's the question we're going to be asking as we look at Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, we have the Israelites. They're about a month out of Egypt, okay? They've been dramatically saved. They're traveling through the wilderness now, God's people. They're trying to get to the land of Canaan that God has promised them. They said, you're going to get there. This is the land I've promised you, and I may always make good on my promises. But now they're wandering through the wilderness And on their journey, they find themselves hungry. They find themselves hungry. Exodus 16, verse 2. We're going to jump in. I don't have time to read all of this. I'd encourage you to go back and read this whole chapter. It could be a a three-week series on itself, but we're going to be uh, looking at a few of selected passages here in 16. Verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Israelites, as they're wandering, God has saved them. He has shown up. Now they're wandering in the wilderness. And they're looking and they're questioning God. God, what are you doing? Moses, why are you doing this to us? Why did you lead us here? Why did you take us here? Are you trying to kill us? They're crying out to God and even to Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt anyway? Did you hear that? At least in Egypt, we had pots full of meat and bread to our fill. What are you doing here, God? And this is the same grumbling that we saw happen just a few chapters earlier in Exodus 14. It's almost verbatim. So this was before they were freed, before they were saved, and there was no more army at their feet. Listen to what they said back in Exodus 14, 11, and 12. They said to Moses, this is before they crossed the Red Sea. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt you have taken us away here to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What do we see here? Before they were saved and after they were saved, a people freed, a people in bondage running for their lives, and a people freed and liberated with no more army at their feet. There's like no difference. Right? There's no difference in their attitude. There's no difference in their grumbling. There's no difference in their character. Has anything changed with these people? Like, what's going on here? Do you ever ask that question about yourself? God, I know I'm saved. But I look at my life and I'm like, is anything different? Are you working? I keep going back to the same things I struggled with long ago. I keep going back to the same thing I worried about yesterday, the day before, the week before. Has anything changed? Well, yes. In one sense, things are massively different. Um, they were slaves serving Pharaoh in Egypt, and now they're on the other side of the Red Sea, and they're freed. And they're on their way to the promised land that God had promised them, and God is taking them there. Pharaoh and his army are gone. The ones that were at their heels that were going to take them back into chains and enslave them are gone. They're dealt with. So in one sense, yes, things are massively different that since they were taken out of Egypt and they were taken out of slavery. They're no longer slaves. What we see here in Exodus 16 is even though they were taken out of Egypt and even though they were taken out of slavery, the hardship of the wilderness and the hardship of hunger is revealing something about their hearts. It's bubbling up something in their hearts. The hardship of hunger and the hardship of wilderness is revealing something about their hearts and in their hearts. Now, I don't know about you, but this is, happens to me all the time when I get hungry, right? We even have a word for it now that we've made up. We've just smashed two words together. Anyone remember what that word is? We say it in my family. Yes, my daughter knows it. Hangry. That's right. When we get hungry for two, like maybe we, we I mean... I don't like to miss a meal, right? That's kind of obvious. But so when I miss a meal, I get a little hangry, right? And I start getting irritable. I start getting cranky. I start getting uh, mad. I start getting hangry is what we call it. And my kids kind of notice it. And my wife definitely notices it. And I start being a jerk. And I start being snippy and short. And the fuse is a little bit shorter, right? Well, it's not just because I didn't eat that I'm mad. It, Becoming hangry just reveals that I'm a jerk the whole time, right? And the hunger is revealing what's already in me. The hunger is revealing what's already inside of me. And so in Exodus 16, hunger is not making the Israelites grumble and question God's goodness. Hunger is revealing that they already have a grumbling heart. A heart that questions God, a heart that doesn't trust God, a heart that wonders, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you taking me here? A heart that doesn't trust him. It's revealing something that's already there. Now, when they were in Egypt, if you remember, as we've journeyed through this story, they 
begged that God would save them and rescue them from this harsh treatment. 400 years of slavery, and now he's liberated them, he's freed them, and they remember Egypt, and they think, remember when we had all that meat and bread to the full. They actually remember their slavery and bondage with fondness. I wish I could just go back there. They remember when they were in chains with fondness, when they had harsh treatment. What does that show us? It shows us that there's something still in their hearts that needs to be dealt with. They still had slavery in their hearts. That even though God's people had been taken out of slavery, had been liberated, were no longer slaves, had crossed over the Red Sea, and their enemies had been dealt with, they still had it in their hearts. It had not been taken out of their hearts. This is clear to see. Even though the Israelites had been taken out of slavery, slavery had not yet been taken out of their hearts. That leads us to a principle here. And we can see this is true uh, all over the place in many different circumstances. And we see it true right here with the people of God. And I believe it's true with you and I even today. That you can take people out of slavery in an instant. Bam. Done. Liberated. They cross the Red Sea. Legally no longer slaves. Politically no longer slaves. In a military sense no longer slaves because their army was gone. You can get people out of slavery in an instant, but you cannot get slavery out of people except through a long process. It takes time. Legally, they were free, but they had to learn how to work out their new freedom that the Lord had given to them in their everyday lives to trust God because for 400 years, they had known something different. Their families had known something different. Their days looked different. And God is taking them through a process to teach them and to show them what it meant to be saved. So this is the question. If I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? Because church, you and I can be taken out of slavery to sin in an instant. God saves us. But it's really hard to take the slavery of sin out of our hearts. It takes a long time. Um, God saved you in Christ, Christian. He's in an instant saved you. Things are massively different for you now. Your future is massively different now because of what God has done. But we keep falling into sin because our hearts are so easily entangled by the things that we're used to. The things we fall back into. The things we all of a sudden, I don't know if I can trust God for that, so I'm going to run over here. Um, So why do we keep sinning, right? Taking the slavery out of a person is a long process. Taking someone out of slavery is called justification. That's this idea of salvation. They were justified in a moment. We cross the sea. We believe by faith the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an instantaneous work done by God and God alone. We have no effort in it. He bestows upon us the blood of Christ. He applies it to us. But then taking 
the slavery to sin that we have that so easily entangles us out of a person, that's called something different. And it's another aspect of our salvation, and it's called sanctification. Sanctification. So in an instant, we're justified by God, by his work, but the process of making us into the likeness of God through Christ Jesus our Lord is called sanctification. And as we now get into this next movement in Exodus, we're going to see God doing that with his people. And God does that with you and I through a process called sanctification. And sanctification is this aspect of salvation that God has for us. It is not instantaneous. It's a work of getting the slavery to sin that so easily entangles us out of our hearts little by little over a period of time sometimes even decades over the course of your life. I had a seminary professor, uh, Dallas Seminary, his name is John Hanna, distinguished professor of church history. He's in his 80s now, brilliant man. Uh, He went on faculty at Dallas Seminary uh, when he was in his 30s in some capacity. He moved into a house. Him and his wife still live there today. He said when they moved in, the first week they bought an oak tree at a nursery, and they planted an oak tree in the front yard. And uh, he said, one day, I want my grandkids to swing in a swing in this oak tree. And it was tiny. It was like, right? It's like you could step on it and you could mow it over with your lawnmower and be gone. Um, he tells a story that today, he's still in that house, that tree is massive. It covers his whole front yard. The limbs are huge. And there's a swing in it. And his grandchildren and great-grandchildren now swing in that swing. It's a beautiful story, but he always tells us, and always stuck with me. And he said this. He said, you know what? I never saw that tree grow. He was there decades and decades and decades. And he never saw it grow. That's sanctification. God making you into something. Deepening your roots. Taking you through droughts. Taking you through floods. Taking you through storms. A lot of times we get impatient with God. But the life that he's taking us on, the way that he's working and getting the slavery to sin out of our hearts is a long process. And that was true of the Israelites and it's true of you and I today. And so we're going to look at three things here this morning in Exodus 16. Three ways that God takes the slavery to sin out of our hearts. Uh, Number one, by taking us to the wilderness. Number two, by showing us his greatness. And three, by calling us into obedience. So when the Bible uses the word wilderness, uh, it's talking about a place where life cannot be sustained. Life cannot grow. Nothing can grow there. And so the reason the Israelites find themselves thirsty and the reason the Israelites find themselves hungry is because they are in the wilderness. Now here's the question. Why are they in the wilderness? How did they get here? Is it because of sin and disobedience? Is it because they just got lost and God had to find them? Why are they in the wilderness? What got them there? Why are they there? Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 8 is fast forwards uh, from Exodus 16 about 40 years. They're about to, God's people are about to enter the promised land. They're about to go into Canaan. Moses is at the end of his life. And he gathers the people of Israel to remind them why they were in the wilderness for so long. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give you and your fathers. They're about to enter the land that they've been promised. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So why are they there? Deuteronomy 8, we're confronted with a striking fact. The reason they are in the wilderness, the reason God's people are in the wilderness, a place with no food, with no water, with no way to sustain life, the reason they are there in this awful, in this hard, in this dangerous, in this even uncomfortable place is that God led them there. It was part of God's plan to take them to the wilderness. They weren't just lost and God had to find them. God said, remember, I led you into the wilderness. Let's keep reading. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. I led you in the wilderness to test you to know what was in your heart. There were things in your heart that needed to be revealed so that you would know. So why did God lead the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years to show what was in their heart? What was in their heart that we're going to keep seeing? Um, Slavery, refusal to trust God, refusal to obey God, grumbling against God, complaining, not trusting, uh, complaining about their current circumstances, wishing they could go back to their slavery because that's when they had meat and that's when they had bread, remembering with fondness their slavery. I wish I could just go back there. That what was it. That's what was in their hearts. And it was not the wilderness that created this mistrust and this grumbling and this complaining, wishing that they were somewhere else. The wilderness revealed what was already there. And the Lord wanted to make a people for his own possession. So he took them to the wilderness to show them and teach them how to trust him. The wilderness was a place that he would sanctify his people. It's part of their salvation. Will you trust me today? Will you trust me today? Will you trust me today? He was preparing God's people. In church, that's how God uses the wilderness even in our lives. God saves you. And then he gives us his spirit. And he wants to make you into a kind, a generous, uh, a loving, a Christ-exalting person, a joyful person, a thankful person, a generous person. Right? He wants to make you into all these things. So uh, how does he do that? Oftentimes he sanctifies you through the wilderness. Wilderness training is the way he makes you and shapes you and molds you into the person that he wants to make you into. And a lot of times uh, the most loving and forgiving people, if you think about in your life, the the ones that you would look to as an example of someone, this is the most loving person I know. This is the most forgiving person I know. I cannot believe how the Lord has made them this forgiving, loving, kind person. How did they get there? Usually it's not a person uh, that has never had to forgive anyone of anything in their lives. The person that you would look to to say, I want to be like that. 
is someone that has experienced loss, that maybe has experienced betrayal, and because of the goodness of God that was near them and shaping them and molding their hearts by the Spirit of God, they were able to forgive in this extreme circumstance. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. Because God has transformed them through wilderness, that they're able to forgive and love and be joyful even when their circumstances say they shouldn't be. Um, so just because we've been saved doesn't automatically make us a loving person, doesn't automatically make us a generous person, doesn't automatically make us a forgiving person. We go through a process of learning and growing and trusting just like the Israelites. Even though God saved them, God led them into the wilderness to deal with their hearts of bitterness of anger, of questioning. Um, this is hard for us. This is the hard part of our salvation. Because we want sanctification to happen just like justification, don't we? I mean, I do. It's like, okay, I'm saved. Bam, saved, just justified. We want sanctification to happen just like that. Okay, change my heart right away. It's done. But it doesn't happen like that. Remember how the Israelites were saved? When they walked through the Red Sea, remember what, what was said? Stand still, be still, be silent, and watch the salvation of the Lord. You do nothing. You watch me do this. And God moved. That's the way we're saved. But then we're saved oftentimes into something that God wants to mold and shape a sanctification is the process of becoming more like God and working out our salvation. It's a long process. Some of you right now are in the wilderness and it's hard, but take courage. Uh, God is doing something. He's shaping your heart. He's molding you. In the wilderness, oftentimes God takes things away so we can place our hope and trust in him. Why? Because it takes our eyes off those things and places them on God so that we can cling to him and him alone. Point two, another way God sanctifies us is one, through the wilderness, and two, by showing us his greatness. Now, some of you are like, we've already seen his greatness. It's been this whole book. It's like the ten plagues. It's a burning, not burning bush that we talked about. It's a parting of the Red Sea. And like, how much more greatness could we possibly see here? It's like, yes, he has shown us his greatness, and he's going to continue to, but he's going to do so in a very different and new way right here. We're going to see his greatness in a way we've never seen. Exodus 16, 3 and 4. And the people of Israel said to him, Would we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly of hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to reign. Let's stop right there. Now, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, uh-oh, God's about to do, he's about to rain down what? Like we've seen it before. The Israelites are grumbling. He's just saved them. They're, they're complaining. They're like, God, are you trying to kill me? And God's like, I'm about to rain down, if it were me, judgment, brimstone. Like, I'm going to deal with these people and show them. That's not what he does. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about 
to rain bread. Not judgment. Not hellfire and brimstone on his people. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 16, and this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat, that you shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so, and they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whomever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. We're going to skip down, verse 35 and 36. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God is showing us his greatness. But his greatness is being seen in a way we've not yet seen before. We've seen 10 plagues. We've seen the burning bush. We've seen the, the parting of the Red Sea. He's already shown the Israelites the greatness of his power. He controls the wind and the waves. He controls creation. He has dominion over it. He is above every other god. He is uh, powerful in his might. Now he's showing them the greatness of his patience, the greatness of his love toward them, the greatness of his kindness toward them, the greatness of his nearness and care and provision for them. For 40 years, church, 40 years, every morning, without fail, God provided his people bread, manna, from heaven. Think of the care in that. They were told to gather an omer for each person. That's just a measuring unit for each household. Think about that. It, think about this, this specificity that he knows every person. Gather a portion for every single person so that no one would be lacking. Any new children that would be born, God said, I'm going to give a little bit more. He provides for every personal need of those in his care every morning. This would have been new for the Israelites. An agrarian society, they were used to harvesting and keeping lots of food. So this was an activity of daily trust in the Lord. Wait, what if it doesn't come tomorrow? Many of us struggle with that. I've got to store it up now. What if I don't have enough for tomorrow? Every morning, don't take more than this because you will have enough for everyone. I'm providing for you. He shows his greatness and care and love for four decades every single day. And he said, remember, he provides the manna and this would be a test, a test of what? To see if they would obey him and follow his instructions. He said, every day you need to go out and gather manna, except on the sixth day, which they were to gather twice as much because the seventh day would be a day of rest. He's establishing the Sabbath, a day of rest. These people would have had no concept of this. They were slaves. All they did was work. 
A day of rest? What? Can you imagine the anxiety? Oh, I gotta, I gotta gather more and I gotta get more. In an agrarian society, they were probably uh, harvesting fields. Can you imagine? No, gather twice as much this day and in the seventh day, you rest. Trust me. You rest in me. Look at verse 27. They failed this test. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none, just like God said. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. He's reminding them, refrain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. They failed. Like almost right away. The very next chapter, they're going to grumble and complain again. Uh, next time, because they don't have enough water. They're thirsty. Uh, we're going to see later them try to raise up another leader to overthrow Moses and Aaron. We're going to see them craft and form and fashion an idol that they want to bow down and worship. And say, That's, this is the God that we need to worship. One made of their own hands. We're going to see them fail. We're going to see them disobey over and over and over. But verse 35, look at this. Remember this. <laughs> the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. God tests them and they fail. But in the greatness of God, his patience, his love over and over and over and over again for 40 years in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of them trying to overthrow their leader, in the midst of them fashioning and forming an idol to bow down and worship, in the midst of their failure, he says, let's try again tomorrow. Let's do this tomorrow. I'm going to give you bread that you need for tomorrow. the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the care of God, working in their hearts to show them, you can trust me. You can trust me today. You can trust me today. Think of the morning after they bowed down and worshiped an idol they fashioned with their own hands. And the next day, God still provided for them bread. <laughs> I can imagine. I don't know. This is just me. I would, I would be gathering that bread for my family with tears in my eyes. I can't believe that I did that. And yet you still came after me. You still provided for me. You still give, have given me everything I need today. And he says, let's do it again tomorrow. Trust me tomorrow. The daily kindness of God, even when we fail. Church, he is good to you, even when you fail. He wants us to see the greatness of his kindness toward you. His mercies are new every morning for you. Um, and through it all, he's taking the slavery of sin and all the things we chase after that are not of him out of our hearts and making us more like him, helping us trust him, helping us see his goodness. Last thing we're gonna look at, number three. 
excuse me, we see God sanctifying us by calling us to obedience. So this is the, one of the fundamental differences between justification and sanctification. Justification requires no obedience. God does it all. We stand there. We're still. We're silent. God saves uh, in his mercy. It's all of him so that no one can boast. In sanctification, he calls us to walk in the way that he has instructed for us. He calls us to action. He calls us to obey. Obedience is absolutely required for sanctification. Sanctification is impossible without obedience. Now, I'm not saying you have to obey in order to be saved. I'm saying when you're saved, we will obey because in the process of salvation, he's working these things out so that we would walk and look more like him. And it's a kindness of God that he does this. So every day for 40 years, God provides manna for his people. God does that. But what do the Israelites do? How are they to obey? God gives them specific instructions on what to do and how to receive this provision. They had to go out and gather. They had to gather a certain amount, a certain omer. They had to take this much. They had to provide it. They weren't to gather on this day. Why? Because they were to rest and trust in the Lord. And then they had to prepare it. They had to cook it and they had to eat it. They had to participate and obey and take in that which God had given to them. If they just looked at the manna on the ground and didn't do anything about it, they would have starved in the wilderness. But God gives them instructions on how to take it and how to thrive and how to flourish. And so it is for even you and I, church. But we're not offered bread from heaven. Um, we're offered Christ. He is offering to us Jesus. Now, I'm not just making that up. Jesus himself tells us this. John 6, 32 and 35, referencing this passage in Exodus 16. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're like, we want this bread. We know God gave, uh, 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 the Israelites gave our people all this bread. We, are you saying there's new manna that we can get? He's essentially saying yes. And here's how we get it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Every day, church, our Heavenly Father is offering us not just bread for our physical bodies, but Jesus, the bread of life, so that we can live. Every day, without fail, our Father is offering to us Jesus, the bread of life. But we have to go to him. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's an act of us coming to Jesus and being yoked with Jesus and walking with Jesus in his provision, knowing he is the bread of life that sustains us. So long as we walk in his way, in his path, in his yoke, and it's a good yoke. Jesus says, I know you're in the wilderness. I brought you there. I know you're weary. I know you're heavy laden, but come with me. Do the work that I'm after, and you will actually find rest, and you will be filled, and you will have life. 
and you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again with me. How do we do that? Um, through prayer and God's word. We would talk to him. We would come to him. We would hear from him. We would commune with him. We would open up his word. We would know him. We would take in his word. We would feast upon it. It would fill us to overflowing. Think about the greatness of God of providing you his word that we can know him and how to live and how to walk with him and how to flourish in this life. And in doing so, every day when we get up or whenever you meet with him, don't just leave it on the bookshelf. Don't just walk away from him. Don't just assume I'll get to it next year. Every day, like bread from heaven, would we take in that which he's given to us because in doing so, he's working out the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can be yoked with Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He wants you to experience the salvation that he's given to you every day. Every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day reliance on God, on the God who loves you and provides for you, even in the wilderness, church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you provide for us. We thank you that you've given to us your very son who has come, who is the bread of life that we get to take in, and those who take him in will never hunger and never thirst again. And so God, for those of us in this room who have been saved, God, I pray that we would welcome the sanctification in our lives and we would uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling and trust you every day and come to you and take you in and feast upon your word. Go to you in prayer. And we would learn as God's people to trust you today, knowing that you provide, you are trustworthy. Even in the wilderness, you're teaching us and shaping us and molding us to be a people of your own possession. Lord, we thank you for the bread of life, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who purchased our salvation and is even now sanctifying us by the Spirit. Would we trust you and would we walk in your way, knowing it is the good way. In Christ's name.